0: This video is part of an audiobook series featuring Europe, The Strange Death of Europe, Immigration, Identity, and Islam, by Douglas Murray in 2017. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel, find me on Spotify, or check out my website for downloads. Chapter 13, Tiredness As so often, the Germans have a word for it, Geschrieksmühle meaning weary of history. It is something that modern Europeans can feel at almost any time. Some may feel it continuously, whereas others get it in waves, often at surprising moments. On a recent flight to Budapest, I got hit by a sudden wave of it after turning on the in-flight navigation map on the screen in front of me. We were flying over Germany, and the moving map placed us over the center of a triangle of these cities, Nuremberg, Regensburg, and Beirut. On that occasion, it was easy to identify the layers. Nuremberg, obviously, for the post-war trials, but also the Meistersinger. Regensburg, most carefully for that careful and fateful address by Pope Benedict, the Ruth for the culture's heights and depths. But the surge of layered thoughts brought on two things more than anything else, the reminder of how old our continent is and how many layers of history there are then close behind that thing that causes the tiredness, the fear that none of this can ever be escaped, and that these histories are always there, capable of not only breaking out, but of dragging under. You don't have to be German to experience this, though it helps. It isn't an entirely new phenomenon either. For centuries, Europe has had terms, including pseudo-medical ones, to describe personal listlessness and fatigue, including varieties of nervous exhaustion. In the 19th century, there was a vogue for diagnosing neurasthenia. But even 19th century exhaustion was not only fearful about frayed nerves, but existential tiredness. It was a subject in German thought and literature long before the catastrophes of the 20th century. In the late 19th and early 20th, early 20th centuries, Friedrich Nietzsche, Sigmund Freud, Thomas Mann, and Rainer Maria Rilke all wrote about it. At that time, a consensus emerged that the speed and variety of the pressures involved meant, among other things, that there was a draining of the spirit, which was particular to modern life. Those who addressed this problem or suffered from it looked for cures as well as diagnoses and found them in a whole range of physical lifestyle changes, encompassing everything from physical exercise to the growth of the culture, of the sanatorium, alterations in diet, and an evangelism for the eating of the muesli. Others looked abroad for a solution, identifying their listlessness as originating in a particular Europe fatigue. Some of these people looked to the Orient for the answers to their problems. Their tired Europeans could bathe their nervous souls away from the crushing weight of their own past and present. In the decades that followed, an attention to this problem was often reframed but never went away. Today in the modern technological global workplace, one modern depiction of existential tiredness has been reframed in Germany as burnout. Perhaps the term is caught on because it is more flattering than tiredness, absolving the sufferer from the implications of indulgence that that accompanies those who are to suffer from fatigue or ennui. After all, among other things, burnout suggests that the sufferer may have selflessly just given too much of themselves with the implication that they have done so much for the greater good. Yet, although the term may have changed, the symptoms and causes of the old tiredness and the new burnout remain the same. They include a, ch- a tiredness brought on by the peculiar speed and complexity of change in the modern world and work habits that are a result of modern capitalism and information technology. But Burnout has also been attributed to the dislocation caused by tem- contemporary secularism. In recent years, so many books and articles on burnout have appeared, in the German press, that some people have even complained of burnout burnout. If it is currently accepted that a person can suffer burnout, it seems less common today that, to accept that societies might suffer something similar. If the burden of working for little reward in an isolating society stripped of any overriding purpose can be recognized to have an effect on individuals, how could it not also be said to have an effect on society as a whole? Or to put it the other way around, if enough people in a society are suffering from a form of exhaustion, might it not be that the society they are living in has become exhausted itself? Writers and thinkers were not always as reluctant as they are today to accept such a possibility One of the most bracingly pessimistic works of the early 20th century German thought, Oswald Spengler's Decline of the West, argued precisely that. Spengler claimed claimed that civilizations like people are born, flourish, decay, and die, and that the West was somewhere in the latter stages of this process. Even if the standard rejection of Spenglerism, that one of the notable characteristics of Western culture, is precisely that it permanently fears itself to be in decline, is true it does it still does not mean that at some point the self-pitying west may not be onto something a generation earlier nietzsche had considered the same possibility and saw some of the same warning signs he wrote in his late notebooks quote we are no longer accumulating we are squandering the capital of our forebears even in our way of knowing and quote With the help of such thinkers, it is easier to recognize that what was already affecting Germany in the late 19th century was not a tiredness caused by a lack of muesli or fresh air, but an exhaustion caused by a loss of meaning, an awareness that the civilization was no longer accumulating, but living off of a dwindling cultural capital. If that was the case in the late 19th century, then how much stronger is the case today when we live on even smaller portions of that inheritance and breathe even further away from the sources that gave us cultural energy? For centuries in Europe, one of the great if not the greatest sources of such energy came from the spirit of the continent's religion. It drove people to war and stirred them to defense. It also drove Europe to the greatest heights of human creativity. It drove Europeans to build St. Peter's in Rome, the cathedral at Chartres, and Duomo of Florence, and the Basilica of St. Mark in Venice. It inspired the works of Bach, Beethoven, and Messiaen, Grunwald's altarpiece at Eisenheim, and Leonardo's Madonna of the Rocks. Yet in the 19th century, that source received two seismic blows from which it never recovered, leaving a gap that has never been filled. The effects of the wave of biblical criticism that swept through German universities in the early 19th century is still being felt two centuries later. When Johann Gottfried Eichhorn at Göttingen began to treat the texts of the Old Testament with the same scrutiny as as would be applied to any other historical text, it had an effect that is still rarely acknowledged. Europe had Europe had knowledge of the great myths, yet the Christian story was the continent's foundational myth, and as such had been inviolable. In 1825, when a young Edward Pusey was sent from Oxford University to find out what these German critics were doing, the Englishman realized the import of the work at once. Late in his life, he, recall- he recalled to his biographer the impact that his discoveries in Germany had on him, quote, I can remember the room in Göttingen in which I was sitting when the real condition of religious thought in Germany flashed upon me. I said to myself, this will all come upon us in England and how utterly unprepared for it we are, end quote. Pussy was struck by Eichhorn's total insensibility to what Pussy saw as the real religious import of the narrative. In time, that wave of insensibility, or sensibility, extended to the New Testament as well, not least through David Friedrich Strauss and his The Life of Jesus Critically Examined from 1835 it finally did reach England just as it had reached everywhere else. As sure as the Islamic critics or clerics today fight to keep any element of criticism away from the foundations of their faith, in the knowledge of what it will do to the whole, so the Christian clergy across Europe tried to keep the results of such criticism away from their flock. But they could not. Just as surely as the clerics today could not wholly stem the tide of criticism approaching them, it washed over the continent as surely as it was predicted. It was not just the investigation, it was not just that the investigations of the German scholars had discovered fresh roots of scholarship. Trying to keep the Bible Bible water type from criticism failed not because the question raised in the heads of the German higher critics were unique to them, but because they were questions that had occurred to many people. Now, they had been voiced, and the Bible was henceforth up for critical inquiry and analysis, like any other text. Pulled apart by historical comparison, questions of authorship and questions of fallibility, the generations of believers after Strauss would have to find a new accommodation with these discoveries. Some pretended that these changes had not occurred, were not relevant, or had all been answered. But much of the clergy began to realize that a fundamental shift had occurred and that they must shift too. Of course, textual scholarship did not do this job single-handed. It was joined in 1859 by the other part of the double whammy, To the Christian Faith, which was Charles Darwin's On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection. Perhaps even more important than the contents of the book itself was the process Darwin sped up. Where once divine design had explained every all that was awe-inspiring, Darwin put forward an entirely new proposal that, as Richard Dawkins had summed up, quote, Given sufficient time, the non-random survival of hereditary entities, which occasionally miscopy, will generate complexity, diversity, beauty, and an illusion of design so persuasive that it is almost impossible to to distinguish from deliberate intelligent design." Darwin's discovery was fiercely debated at the time, as it is now, but the backlash was doomed to failure. The condition of the argument for the divine scheme after Darwin was not good. This was not about a single discovery. It wasn't even about the filling in of one particularly large gap in man's knowledge. It was simply the first wholesale explanation for the world we inhabit that had no need for God. And though the origin of life remained a mystery, the idea that the entire mystery was solved by the claims of religion seemed less and less plausible. It was still possible to find wisdom and meaning in the scriptures, but the Bible had at best become like the work of Ovid or Homer, containing great truth but not itself true. Although almost everybody in Europe now knows some version of these facts, we have still not found a way to live with them. The facts of the loss of belief and faith across a continent are frequently commented on and indeed taken for granted, but the effects of this are often less considered. Rarely if ever is it recognized that the process described above meant one thing above all, that Europe had lost its foundational story. And the loss of religion to Europe did not just leave a hole in the moral or ethical outlooks of a continent, it even left a hole in its geography. Unlike, say, the United States, the geography of Europe is a collection of towns and villages. Leave a village and you will eventually stumble upon another. In any low-built area, the first thing you will see is the church, placed at the heart of the community. Today, where these hearts of the communities are not wholly dead and converted into houses, they are dying, and the people who still congregate them who still congregate in them sense that they are in a dying movement. Whereas faith still exists, it is either wholly uninformed, as in the evangelical communities, or it is it is wounded and weak. In very few places does it retain the confidence it had in former times, and none of the trends favor these outposts the tide has flowed in only one direction, and there are no significant currents running the other way. Even Ireland, which in recent decades still had some of the most devout and religiously doctrinaire politics of anywhere in Europe, has become, partly because of one major scandal within the priesthood, in a little over a decade, a country in which opposition to faith has become the dominant national trend. The Dreams We Dream Yet despite having lost our story, we are still here, and we still live among the actual debris of that faith. Few people among the crowds flowing through Paris flock to Notre Dame to pray, but yet it is there. Westminster Abbey and Cologne Cathedral may still dominate the places in which they stand, and though they have ceased to be places of pilgrimage, they still signify something, though we do not know exactly what. We are able to be tourists or scholars to study the history of these monuments as amateurs or professionals, but their meaning has been lost or mislaid. And of course, course, the glorious debris we live among is not only physical, but also moral and imaginative. The English atheist theologian Don Cupid wrote in 2008 of the fact that nobody in the West can be wholly non-Christian. You may call yourself non-Christian, but the dreams you dream are still Christian heritage dreams. Nowhere is the fear of the consequences of this more clearly felt than the fear of what, in lieu of faith, stands at the foundations of what are called European values. It may be, as Cupid has also said, that the modern Western secular world is itself a Christian creation. After a period of often gleeful rejection of any such notion, in recent years a significant number of philosophers and historians have returned to accepting this idea. If so, then the implications of this fact remain deeply unsettling. The post war culture of human rights that insists upon itself and is talked of by its devotees as though it were a faith does itself appear to be an attempt to implement a secular version of the Christian conscience. It may be particular partially successful in doing so. But it is a religion that must necessarily be ill at ease with itself because it is uncertain of its moorings. The language is a giveaway. As the language of human rights becomes grander and grander, and its claims for itself become more and more insistent, so the system's inability to do so, or to do what it aspires to do, becomes plainer for all to see. Such visible failure in a sense of lost moorings can be, for the individual as for society, not only a cause for concern, but an exhausting emotional process. Where once there was an overriding explanation, however many troubles that brought, now there is only an overriding uncertainty and question, and we cannot unlearn our knowledge. Even someone who regrets their inability to connect with the faith that used to propel them cannot believe again simply in order to regain the propulsion. And as Europe learnt from philosophers such as John Locke, it is not possible to force faith. Nevertheless, our societies go on, largely avoiding addressing these and other gaping questions or pretending that they do not matter. In Germany, more than most societies, the loss of God did not have nothing to replace it. There, part of the purpose of religion, in particular, the pursuit of truth and the knowledge that it should be pursued, continued in some form through the nation's philosophy and culture. Yet, this too crashed, even more spectacularly than religion. For Ludwig Feuerbach and others, Richard Wagner took the notion of art, picking up from where religion had left off, in the belief that art could be more than a replacement for religion, religion, it could be even better than religion. Not least because art could live without cultural or religion's encumbrances. As Wagner put it at the start of his 1880 essay, Religion and Art, "...while the priest stakes everything..." on the religious allegories being accepted as matters of fact, the artist has no concern at all with such a thing, since he freely and openly gives out his work as his own invention. End quote. So Wagner professed to solve Arthur Schopenhauer's great conundrum in his Dialogue on Religion, of the tragedy of the priest who cannot admit that it is all a metaphor. For Wagner, the role of art was to save the spirit of religion, What he attempted to speak on in his music and essays was the source of that otherworldly, subconscious voice that calls to us, asks questions, and seeks answers. From Tannhauser all the way through to Parsifal, his ambition and achievement created a kind of religion that could stand on its own and sustain itself. Perhaps more than any other composer, he achieved that aim. Yet it was not enough, and it too foundered, of course. It failed to achieve a fully religious state for individuals, those who try to live their lives by the Wagnerian religion find themselves living very unhappy lives. And it failed more publicly because the whole world, whether justly or un- or otherwise, could one day learn from Wagner himself that culture on its own cannot make anyone either good or happy. There was still the philosophy, but German philosophy was almost at the very root of the problem. The sense of neurasthenia, Episthenia, felt in the late 19th century, was in part created by a weariness with philosophy. And not only because suddenly there was so much awareness of how much there was to think about, but because German thought was already characterized by a weightiness that too easily transferred into weariness and even fatalism. There are, of course, many reasons for this, but among them is a peculiarly German pursuit of continuously, relentlessly, pursuing ideas to their end point, wherever that might lead. This tendency also has an expression in German, Drang nach dem absoluten, the drive towards the absolute. It is not a phrase that the English or English philosophy would use, but it aptly sums up that habit of pushing and pushing ideas until they reach what can then seem to be an unavoidable and even seemingly predetermined end point. Once that end point becomes clear, what can be done to avoid it? There is a reading of Hegel that can lead people to this, to the idea that history itself is a force to which we must simply submit. In this vision of philosophy and of politics, it might be more accurate to describe not so much a drive drive towards the absolute as a pull towards the absolute. From at least the 19th century, German philosophy had a tendency to present certain ideas and theories as revealed truths, exercising an almost gravitational force that could not be resisted however hard it might be to live with those truths. The dogged habit of pushing ideas to their utmost point made German philosophy overtake most other philosophies of the day. It was why it swept not only across Europe, but also across Russia, and eventually, even the universities of America. Indeed, German philosophy almost ruled the world of philosophy for a time, and it helped also to crash it. The, truth, the truths were laid out, and people simply had to find a way to live with them, Martin Heidegger is often said to have provided the nadir when he used his rector's address at the University of Freiburg in 1933 to tell his audience that the crucial decisions for the future of their country had now been made for them. Decisions were a thing of the past, in his view, because all of the important questions had now been decided. All that could now be done was submit to those decisions. Just one of the problems with absolutes in the pursuit of them is what happens when they crash. Unlike the fudge of liberalism which allows everybody to plausibly blame anything, an absolute when it crashes leaves everything in the wreckage, not only people and countries but all dominant ideas and theories. From the rubble of these constantly crashing ideas, a certain ennui is not just likely but inevitable. In the 19th and early 20th centuries, from Bismarck to the Great War, Germany went through such crashes repeatedly not least among the catastrophes of each crash was that each made the next more likely. The British writer Stephen Spender spent part of his 1930s living in Berlin and reflected on that time in his diary in 1939. Before the ultimate catastrophe had begun, he mulled on the Germans he had met while living there. As he wrote, quote, The trouble with all the nice people I knew in Germany is that they were either tired or weak. Why were the nice people so tired? End quote. Existential tiredness is not a problem only because it produces a listless type of life. It is a problem because it can allow almost anything to follow in its wake. Some people might find it unlikely that philosophy, which is never going to be a pursuit of more than the very few, could have any such widespread effects. But the failure of ideas and the systems that those ideas create do have an effect. Religious and secular ideas all start with the few but have a way of filtering through a whole nation. A familiar attitude to questions in life is that although one may not know the answers oneself, somewhere, there is someone who does. The effects when the people who know the answers, whether artists, philosophers, or clergy, kept keep being shown to be wrong is far from energizing. And while some systems may be eroded over time, as have the monotheisms of most of modern Western Europe, they may also be debunked comparatively swiftly, as eugenics and racial theories have been debunked. Philosophical and political ideas may be dreamed up by a few, but when their foundations fall away, the more popular they have been, the more desolation they leave in their wake. As was the case with the most popular philosophies of all time, of all, philosophies that could be made into totalistic, political visions. Much of Europe's 20th century political misery came from a contemporary, secular effort to arrive at a political absolute. Indeed, one of the things that made Marxism so close to a religion was not just its reliance on sacred texts and a linear progression of prophets, but the habit of schism and intra-religious warfare. The fight to be the holder of the true flame and the truest interpreter of the faith was one of its attractions as well as one of its eventual weaknesses." But the dream of Marx and from Marx the dreams of communism and socialism were the sincerest attempts of their day to come up with and put into a practice a theory of everything. The endless writings and pamphlets and evangelism in every country of Europe were one more attempt to dream a meaningful dream, capable of solving everything and addressing the problems of everyone. It was, as T.S. Eliot memorably described, an effort at, quote, dreaming of systems so perfect that no one will need to be good. As always, the process of the faith's dissolution came in stages. The heresy of Leon Trotsky, the famines in the Ukraine, and the gradual realization by many communists during the 1930s that not only were the model societies not models, they were barely societies. Efforts to purge the dissidents and other forces allegedly holding back the forces of truth were successful for a time, not only in energizing some of the believers, but in pretending to people that there remained a pure heart to return to. By the time of the show trials, masterminded by Genrikh Yagoda and others in the late 1930s, the pretense that there was anything left but a will to power evaporated and persuaded the sensible communists to leave. Those who did not would fall away after the war with the invasion of Hungary in 1956, and the crushing of the Prague Spring in 1968. These events proved to every remaining communist who had eyes and ears that the worst they had heard, and more, was true. Everything that came out of Russia and the Eastern Bloc, the stories that were so continuous and similar that they could only be dismissed by the most belligerent believer, believer, showed that if communism had been a nightmare for the world, it had been a catastrophe for the people it had claimed to govern. By 1970, in his landmark work, Ni Marx, Ni Jesus, or without Marx or Jesus, Jean-Francois Ravel could say with confidence that, quote, no one today, even within the communist parties of the Western world, seriously contends that the Soviet Union is a revolutionary model for other countries, end quote. If the true believers were falling away gradually, they disappeared almost to a man when the Berlin Wall fell in 1989. In the world had confirmed for them what their very own warning sirens had had been trying to alert to them for years. The confirmation of what their own true believers had done in their effort to dream up the perfect system was scarcely to be believed. But the millions and millions of corpses, the wasted lives, living and dead, that communism left behind as testament to its main accomplishment, were enough to give any sane believer pause. There were some true believers still, like the British historian Eric Hobsbawm, but the world generally reacted to them with the incredulity deserved for a person standing on top of a pile of corpses promising that with just a few more deaths, he could make the whole thing right. Throughout the stages of its collapse, communism had not only revealed its own horrors, it also revealed the foolishness of several generations of people meant to be the cleverest and most informed people on the continent. From the era of Marx right through to 1989, many of the cleverest people of the age contaminated themselves by their approval of the communist system. From George Bernard Shaw to Jean-Paul Sartre, almost all the secular prophets turned out to have been apologists for the worst systems of their time. If there was a half-decent explanation for why many of them stayed around and the whole experiment had been able to survive for so long, it was in part because of the political force against which it had seemed for a time to stand. The fascist dream, like its communist cousin, began as a sincere effort to answer the severe problems of the age, in particular to address unemployment and want in the devastation of Europe following the First World War. It never carried the intellectual class as communism did, but it was able to enrapture some romantics and sadists in a similar manner. And though it crashed sooner than its communist counterpart, largely with that counterpart's assistance, the devastation it left was as great. Italy was able to survive the catastrophe, partly because its fascism had been a slightly different beast from that of Germany, partly because the truest believers had never reached as great a depth in as great numbers as their allies to the north. It was also possible to downplay Italian fascism as a response to the country's pervasive chaos, a chaos that those who planned the post-war Italian state made sure would continue. But while the Italians had drawn deeply at the well of Italian and Roman history to justify their state and their role, the whole well of their history did not seem to have been contaminated or poisonous from the start as it seemed to much of Germany. The famous and most often asked, in, often asked question of Germany, namely how the most sophisticated artistic culture in the world could have become the most barbaric, was a question with a sting in its tail. For always afterwards would come the possibility that it was that very culture and sophistication that made the ensuing barbarism possible. That German culture and philosophy were not the things that had been contaminated by Nazism, but were the very things that had watered it. The well had always been contaminated. Countless things remained, some of which became clear only with time. For example, now that decades have elapsed, it is easier to understand the 20th century struggle between two competing totalitarian visions for a disbelieving world. But it is also easier than it has ever been to feel a fear not only of these ideologies, but of any ideologies. If two apparent opposites, as they seemed at the time, could lead where they did, then perhaps anything can lead there. Perhaps all ideology and certainty are the problem. Is, it is possible that the intellectual and political pollution of Europe's 20th century will never go away. Perhaps it is not a sin that can be washed out. But the number of forces that it polluted along the way are still being counted. Some cannot be missed. Most obvious among these are the racial theories that had fascinated some European writers and geneticists up to the 1940s but lost their appeal after Bergen-Belsen. Other forces caught in the slew included things that Europeans might have had need of in the years ahead. They include the very concept of the nation-state and the feeling of nationhood as well as the ideologies of nationalism. As a form of hypernationalism, Nazism took all of these down with it. Somewhere downriver from there, it also swallowed up the possibility of patriotism. The catastrophe of the First World War had already made patriotism look unforgivable and senseless. The catastrophe of the Second World War made it clear that patriotism could be the source of wickedness itself. What else did these conflicts and the clash of ideologies destroy? if not the least vestiges of religion, then certainly the last refuge of the idea of a merciful God. If this had not been achieved in the mud of Flanders, then it was completed in the trial of God as described by Elie Wiesel at Auschwitz. The Jews could continue their traditions as a people and could believe in the people even if they had lost a faith in their God. But Christian Europe had lost faith not only in its God, but in its people as well. Any remaining faith that man had in man was destroyed in Europe. From the period of the European Enlightenments onward as belief and trust in God had waned, so belief and trust in man had partially replaced this. The belief in autonomous man had accelerated after the Enlightenments that had stressed the potential wisdom of mankind alone. Yet those who let reason be their guide now looked as ridiculous as everyone else. Reason and rationalism had led men to do the most unreasonable and irrational things. It had been just another system used by men to control other men. Belief in the autonomy of man had been destroyed by men. Pause. I respect women enough to be annoyed by the fact that this is all. Um, I understand why they're using the words like the way they say it. You get my point. Thanks, YouTube. Continuing. So it was that by the end of the 20th century, Europeans could be forgiven for possessing or inheriting a certain weariness. They had tried religion and anti-religion, belief and non-belief, the rationalism of man and a faith of reason. They had originated nearly every one of the great political and philosophical projects, and Europe had not just tried them all and suffered them all, but perhaps most devastatingly, seen through them all. Between them, these ideas had left around hundreds of millions of people dead, not just in Europe but around the world wherever versions of these ideas were tried. What could anyone do with such regrets or such knowledge? An individual responsible for such mistakes would have to either deny them or to die of shame. But what does a society do? In the first decade of the present century, it seemed for a moment that this European ennui might find some relief in the form of what was termed a muscular liberalism, a concerted and sometimes even violent defense of liberal arts around the globe. Britain, in particular, signed up for this, as did a number of other European countries, including, on occasion, France. But after interventions in Iraq, Afghanistan, and Libya, all in the name of defending human rights, we noticed that we had left a trail of failed states behind us. Before we had fully realized that fact, a minister of the German government once told me that his country too must one day face up to the fact that there are some values that may be willing not only to fight for and to die for, but to kill for. A striking admission in a country that is still so violently anti-military. Could I quote him on that? Even off the record without attribution? Certainly not, came the reply, leaving me to ponder the efficacy of a policy where a people may proclaim themselves potentially willing to fight, die, and kill for their beliefs, but only off record. The moment of muscular liberalism came and went, and by the time that Syria fell apart without Western intervention, we appeared to have recognized that the global system was beyond our control, and that if we were to be blamed when we acted as well as when we did not, then it was best to do nothing. Everything that Europeans touched turned to dust. Icarus Fallen After the fall of the Soviet Union, the French philosopher Chantal Del Sol came up with the most haunting analogy for the state in which modern Europeans now found themselves. In Le Suchi Contemporain, In 1996, translated into English as Icarus Fallen, she suggested that the condition of modern European man was the condition that Icarus would have been in when he had survived the fall, if he had survived the fall. We Europeans had kept trying to reach the sun, flew too close, and hurtled back down to the earth. They may have certainly failed, and they may be dazed, but they somehow survived, and are still here. All around us they have the wreckage, metaphorical and real of all their dreams, religions, political ideologies, and a thousand other aspirations, all of which in their turn have proved false. And though we have no more illusions or ambitions left, yet we are still here. So what do we do? There are a number of possibilities. The most obvious is that the fallen Icaruses could give themselves over to lives devoted solely to pleasure. As Del Sol observed, this is not a rare resort among people who have lost their gods. Quote, "The great collapse of ideals often draws in its wake a kind of cynicism. If all hope is lost, then let us at least have fun End quote. As she points out, it is what among others, the Soviet leaders did once they lost faith in their particular utopian ideal. When they saw that the system they were meant to have absolute faith in and had devoted their lives to was not just unworkable but a lie. An elite caste within the Soviet empire coped, despite the unimaginable wretchedness outside, by enjoying an existence devoted to their own personal comfort and enjoyment. Yet, as Delsall points out, our situation is beyond even that of the Soviet leaders, who chose to live only for pleasure once their god had failed. Quote, For it is us not only the impossibility of achieving our various certainties that led us to abandon them, she stresses, we have not become absolute cynics, but we have become deeply suspicious of all truths, end quote. The fact that all, of our, that all of their utopias failed so terribly did not only destroy their faith in them, it also destroyed the faith in any and all ideologies. It does seem, living in any Western European society today, that this particular worldview has caught on. Not only the entertainment industries, but also the information industries speak to populations intent only on a fairly shallow kind of personal pleasure. In the words of a famous atheist bust campaign slogan in Britain, quote, There's probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy your life, end quote. The question of how we are to enjoy life is answered only with however you see fit. Who knows what will step into this void, but for the time being the consensus appears to be that the answer lies in enjoying consumerist culture, frequently buying things that do not last, and then buying newer versions of the same to replace them. We can go on holiday, of course, and generally try to have as nice a time as possible. Whatever its advantages, such a lifestyle is reliant on a number of things. One is the maximum possible number of people in a society being fulfilled by that society and seeking no other meaning. Another is that it must go on indefinitely, for it is almost certainly sustainable only so long as the economic tide is rising. If one of the prerequisites for avoiding political extremism is to ensure that the economics do not go wrong, then Europeans are going to have to work exceptionally hard to ensure that the economics go right. This is one explanation for why the argument of mass migration as a net economic gain is so popular. If migrants do keep us in the style to which we have become accustomed by providing us with a constant supply of young and cheap labor, then we may be willing to put up with a lot of potential downsides. And such was the mindset in Europe. If the economics do not go well and the standard of living for Europeans drops, then any wise political leader must know the number of depths that could be visited or revisited. However, for the time being, skating on top of these fears and trying to enjoy themselves is one answer, if not exactly the most interesting that the species has come up with. It may be a terrible generalization to say this, but beneath the surface existence, everything else in European thought and philosophy is a mess. So much so that even whilst seeing where some of those 19th and 20th centuries thinkers went wrong, it is possible to look back on their ideas with something like envy. How certain they were, how infinitely surer still seemed their predecessors. The vastness of the gap between them and us strikes at sudden moments. Consider Isaac Walton's Life of Jean Don in 1640. At the end of this brief work, Walton speaks of his friend's last days and describes his body, quote, which once was a temple of the Holy Ghost and is now become a small quantity of Christian dust. Then at the last line, but I shall see it reanimated. End quote. We sometimes behave as though we had the certainties of our ancestors, yet we have none of them and none of their consolations. Even the bleakest philosophers of 19th century Germany look plagued with certainty and consolation beside their descendants today. Today, German philosophy, like the philosophy of the rest of the continent, has been ravaged not just by doubt, as it should be, but by decades of deconstruction. It has pulled itself and everything apart without having any notion of how to put anything, let alone itself, back together again. Instead of being inspired by the spirit of truth in the search for the great questions, the continent's philosophers have instead become entranced by how to avoid questions. Their deconstruction not only of ideas but of language has led to a concerted effort never to get beyond the tools of philosophy. Indeed, avoidance of the great issues sometimes seems to have become the sole business of philosophy." In its place is an obsession with the difficulties of language and a distrust of all fixed things. The desire to question everything, in order never to get anywhere, appears to be the point, perhaps in order to defang both words and ideas for fear of where both might lead. Here, too, there is a vastness of self-distrust. It was some years ago, during a conference at the University of Heidelberg, that the full catastrophe of modern German thought suddenly came upon me, a group of academics and others had gathered to discuss the history of Europe's relations with the Middle East and North Africa. It soon became clear that nothing would be learned because nothing would be said. A succession of philosophers and histories spent their time studiously attempting to say nothing as successfully as possible. The less that was successfully said, the greater the relief and the acclaim. No attempt to address any idea, history, or fact was able to pass without first being put through the pit stop, of the modern academy. No generality could be attempted and no specific could be uttered. It was not only history and politics that were under suspicion. Philosophy, ideas, and language itself had been cordoned off as though around the scene of a crime. To any outsider, the edges of that scene were clearly visible. The job of the academics was to police the cordons, all the while maintaining some distractions in order to, at all costs, prevent wanderers from stumbling back onto the terrain of ideas. All relevant words were immediately flagged and disputed. The word nation was an obvious problem. History was another word that caused immediate interruption. When someone was so unwise as to use the term culture, events ground to a halt. The word had too many different connotations and disagreements around its use to be able to even be used. The word itself could not be allowed to signify anything. The aim of this game, for a game it was, was to maintain the pretense of academic inquiry, while making fruitful discussion impossible. As in so many academies and colleges across Europe, this game continues to the satisfaction or relief of its participants and the frustration or indifference of everybody else. If there remains any overriding idea, it is that ideas are a problem. If there is any any remaining commonly held value judgment, it is that value judgments are wrong. If there remains any remaining certainty, it is a distrust. certainty. And if this does not add up to a philosophy, it certainly adds up to an attitude. Shallow, unlikely to survive any sustained onslaught, but easy enough to adopt. Yet, most people in their lives seek some form of certainty. Religion, politics, and personal relations remain among the very few ways to try to create such certainty before the chaos we see all around us. Most people outside Europe or the cultures we have influenced share none of these fears distrusts, or doubts. They do not distrust their own instincts or their own actions. They do not fear acting in their own interest or think that their own self-interest or the self-interest of their kind should not be furthered. They seek to further their own lives, aspire to standards of living they see others have attained. And they have, in the meantime, a whole range of ideas, often just as numerous as Europe's, which draw them to other conclusions. What is the effect of people coming into Europe in very large numbers who have not inherited the doubts and intuitions of Europeans? Nobody knows, and nobody ever did. All we can be certain of is that it will have an effect. Putting tens of millions of people with their own sets of ideas and contradictions into a continent which already has a vast history of ideas and contradictions is bound to have consequences. The presumption of those who believed in integration is that in time everybody who arrives will become like Europeans, a presumption made less likely by the fact that so many Europeans are unsure whether they want to be Europeans. A culture of self-doubt and self-distrust is uniquely unlikely to persuade others to adopt its own stance. Meanwhile, it is possible that many, at least of the incomers, will either hold fast to their own certainties or even, quite plausibly, attract Europeans in the generations to come with these certainties. It is also plausible that many of those who come will enjoy the lifestyle, will take part in the aspirations and the fruits of the economic uplift so long as it continues, and yet despise or disdain the culture into which they have come. They may use it, as President Erdogan so memorably said of democracy, like a bus and get off wherever it has taken them to their desired destination." Surveys of social attitudes consistently show migrant communities from outside Europe to have views on the social liberalism, not to say libertarianism, of Europe that would terrify Europeans if those views came from within their own communities. The liberalism of modern Europe Europe also provides these arrivals with some ostensible justifications for their stance. The Muslim father does not want his daughter to become like Western women because he sees some Western women and knows what they do. He does not want his daughter to become obsessed with consumerist culture when he sees all that it produces. That which he would refute is in the society all around him. Perhaps in time, rather than becore, become more like the society into which they have moved, such people will, will become more entrenched in their own ways precisely because of the society into which they have moved. At the same time, the evidence to date suggests that it is like unlikely that Europeans will much defend their own values before such people. In a country like Britain, it has taken decades for opposition to female genital mutilation to be mainstream. Despite being illegal for three decades and despite more than 130,000 victims in Britain, there still have been no successful prosecutions for the crime. Whoa. If Western Europe finds it so difficult even to confront something as straightforward as FGM, it seems unlikely it will ever be able to defend some of its subtler values in the years ahead. Yet, even if all the incomers were a clear threat, even if Europeans regarded all further migration as composed entirely of people who would grow to dislike them, even the fatigue returns. For if that is the case, then an attitude will have to be taken towards it, and a reaction, even a rebellion, will have to take place. Before this, there is a weariness Europeans have felt before, most obviously after the Great War, Can it be possible that having lost so much, another problem of perhaps an even greater scale can emerge? Surely, such sacrifice and disaster earns us some time off in the great calendar of history. The lack of questions and discussions about the change that is happening in Europe may in large part come down to this. Is it better off not to ask the questions because the answers to them are bad? Certainly, that would help explain the otherwise extraordinary levels of opprobrium heaped upon dissenting voices in the era of mass immigration. In particular, it explains the adamant belief that if the people shouting fire are silenced or stopped, then the people they are identifying will go away. After the offices of Charlie Hebdo were firebombed in 2011, Foreign Minister Laurent Fabius attacked the magazine, quote, Is it really sensible to pour fuel on the fire? End quote. Nobody asked him, in reply, who had turned French society into a fire. An era that was unafraid of the consequences of its decisions would not have tried to silence every one of the voices that even said pause. Yet, the burden of tiredness can fall even, or especially, on those who have sounded critical alarms. In an interview with an Italian paper in 2016, Ayan her Ali was asked about the situation back in her formerly adopted country of Holland. After she had left, what had happened to the people who spoke out on the issues she warned about just before she was chased out? The writers, the artists, cartoonists, intellectuals and journalists, had they all just fallen silent? She replied, quote, "The people in the Netherlands who write and talk about Islam and these issues are tired end quote." Why the East is different? Yet, all of this raises another question: Why is Eastern Europe so different? Why has its attitude throughout the migrant crisis toward borders, national sovereignty, cultural cohesion, and many other points besides, been so wholly at odds with that of Western? Throughout the crisis, as in the years before, it was unimaginable that a right-wing Western European leader would have said half of what a left-wing Eastern European leader would. from the summer of 2015 up to the present, whatever the threats and imprecations from the German government and the European Commission, the Vice Guard group of Slovakia, Poland, Hungary, and the Czech Republic took a line entirely contrary to that of, German, of Angela Merkel and Brussels. They criticized the Chancellor's short-sightedness and they held firm in their refusal to take in migrant quotas dictated from Berlin and Brussels. In January of 2016, When the Swedish authorities, European Commission, and others began publicly to acknowledge that the majority of the people they had taken in the previous year had no right to claim asylum in Europe, Jean-Claude Juncker continued to insist on the Commission's proposed quota system to share out the migrants between each country. Slovakia continued to refuse to have any part in what a government described as a nonsense and complete fiasco. While volunteering to add 300 guards to the Schengen area's external borders, they nevertheless continued to insist that they would not take in any quotas of migrants. The left-wing Slovakian Prime Minister Robert Fico said in despair, quote, I feel that we in the EU are now committing ritual suicide, and we are just looking on. Quote. The other Visegrad countries held the same view as Fico. The difference from their Western European partners could not have been more stark. What was it that made the east and west of the same continent think so differently on such a central issue? Chantal de noticed the seeds of this difference in the mid-1990s. Spending time in, the east, in Eastern Europe after the fall of the Berlin Wall, she saw that Eastern Europeans increasingly considered us as creatures from another planet, even while at a different level they dreamed of becoming like us. <laughs> I later became convinced that it was in these Eastern European societies that I should seek some answers to our questions. The divergences between us and them led me to the belief that the last 50 years of good fortune had entirely erased our sense of the tragic dimension of life." That tragic dimension of life had not been erased in the East, and nowhere have the consequences of this been more clearly displayed than in the attitudes of Eastern Europeans' leaders, with the support of their public, to the migration crisis. All these countries wished to join the European Union and all wanted the greatest possible integration of European countries, with free movement and all the economic benefits that membership entailed. But, when Chancellor Merkel opened up the external borders of Europe, all of these countries rebelled. And not just rebelled, but made a stand. On the 15th of March 2016, the Prime Minister of Hungary used his ceremonial speech for the national holiday to explain the East's wholly different approach to migration, borders, culture, and identity. Viktor Orban told the people of Hungary that the new enemies of freedom were different from the imperial and Soviet systems of the past, that today they did not get bombarded or imprisoned, but merely threatened and blackmailed. But, quote, the peoples of Europe may have finally understand, understood that their future is at stake. He continues, At last, the peoples of Europe who have been slumbering in abundance and prosperity have understood that the principles of life that Europe has been built on are in mortal, mortal danger. Europe is the community of Christian, free, and independent nations, equality of men and women, fair competition and solidarity, pride and humility, justice and mercy, This time, the danger is not attacking us the way wars and natural disasters do, suddenly pulling the rug from under our feet. Mass migration is a slow stream of water persistently eroding the shores. It is masquerading as a humanitarian cause, but its true nature is the occupation of territory. Keep in mind, this is a quote from the president or PM of Hungary. Flocks of obsessed human rights defenders feel the overwhelming urge to reprimand us and to make allegations against us. Allegedly, we're hostile xenophobes, but the truth is that the history of our nation is also one of inclusion in the history of intertwining of cultures. Mm, melting pot. Those who have sought to come here as new family members, as allies, or as displaced persons fearing for their lives have been led in to make homes for themselves. But those who have come here with the intention of changing our country, shaping our nation in, our own, in their own image, those who have come with violence and against our will have always been met with resistance. For the most powerful country in Europe, this vision from Hungary could not be accepted. It stood not just in opposition to the policy of the German government of the day, but of each German government's immigration policies since the Second World War. The pressure from Berlin was unrelenting, yet the irreconcilably different outlooks between East and West remained. That May, just a month before his country took over the presidency of the European Union, Robert Fico defended Slovakia's refusal to take in quotas of migrants as dictated by Brussels and Berlin. Despite the threat of huge fines for every migrant not taken in, the Slovakian prime minister dug in, saying, quote, Islam has no place in Slovakia. And hmm. quote. Okay. Migrants change the character of our country. Oh, this is still quote. Migrants change the character of our country. We do not want the character of this country to change. End quote. These countries had drunk from the same wells as the Western European countries for most of their histories, yet, a different attitude had clearly settled here. Perhaps they did not feel, or otherwise had not absorbed, the guilt of Western Europe and did not think that all the faults of the world could be attributed to them. Or, perhaps they had not suffered the enervation and tiredness that had afflicted the Western European countries. Or perhaps, having had no mass immigration during the post-war period, despite having much else, they had retained a a sense of national cohesion that the Western Europeans were struggling to imagine or remember. Perhaps, they were looking at what was happening in Western Europe and simply decided that they did not want the same things to happen in their countries. Perhaps it was all of these things, and perhaps underlying them was the fact that the Visegrád countries had suffered the effects of Western torpor once more. Certainly, they alone of the European nations had within living memory all experienced the tragic dimensions of life that their western allies had forgotten. They knew that everything they had could be swept away from one direction and then just as easily swept away from another. That history does not give any people time off even when they feel they deserve it. Meantime, the rest of the continent remained as much prisoners of history as ever. By the summer of 2016, the Austrian and French authorities had tried to shut their borders to further waves of migrants coming up through Italy from their arrival points on Lampedusa and Sicily. As these restrictions came in, more migrants intent on heading north began to resort to the Swiss option. During the winter, these mountainous passes can be lethal, though during the summer, the remote thin trails across the Italian-Swiss border are passable. That summer, the Italian paper La Stampa spoke to locals in the village of Dumenza that lies between Lake Maggiore and the Swiss border. They noted the trails that were being used, and one old local commented in passing that these are the same paths that Italian Jews used to flee during the war. To think about the migrants was to think about the migrants before. To consider those heading these ways into Germany was to think of those migrants heading the other way once before. To think about the migrants of today was to think about the Jews of yesterday a pass that cannot be avoided thank you for watching please like subscribe and visit my channel for more exciting content